dimensional, transforming, musical, linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. I know that a lot of you who couldn't make it to Burning Man this year are out there wondering how long it's going to take me to get all of this year's Palenque Norte lectures online. And I wish I could answer that, but let's hope that the fact that it's only been a few days since I podcast Eric Davis's talk, that it's a good sign that I'm going to get them out to you a little faster than in previous years. And uh, another reason I want to get Daniel's talk online so soon after my last two podcasts is that if you paid close attention to them, you heard Mark Pesci and Eric Davis talking about 2012 in a way that may not be as revolutionary as some of you have been hoping for. As Mark said, Werner Vinge accused him once of being a gradualist, and uh, Eric warned us about letting the combination of psychedelic medicines and indigenous teachings become a pseudo-religion. So how do these two concepts square with the new research involving all the Mayan and Hopi prophecies that's been published lately? Well, that's a very good question, and it's also a hot topic around my house right now as well. So let's take a listen to what Daniel Pinchbeck had to say in his 2006 Palenque Norte lecture at Burning Man. His talk is titled, Cancel the Apocalypse, and it came immediately after Eric Davis's lecture that I featured in my previous podcast. So let's join the audience in the big tent at in Theon Village, which was overflowing out onto the playa late on Friday afternoon as Daniel began his talk. We'll pick up on my introduction where I was telling a story about how Daniel and I had just bumped into one another in center camp at Burning Man in 2002, after not having seen one another since the Entheobotany Conference in Palenque a year before. It was at uh, the 2002 burn, and I think we were probably both uh, coming in from the night and uh, having a cup of morning coffee. I sat down, and all of a sudden we looked up, and there was Daniel, you know. And uh, I said, well, what have you been up to lately? And he said, oh, I've got this little book I finished called Breaking Open the Head. How many of you have read that book? A classic. I get, I get emails from uh, people that listen to our podcast all the time, and, and uh, they just can't get enough of Daniel. Daniel has a new book out, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. And it's a dynamite book. I have to admit, I, I started and read the last two chapters first, and now I'm about halfway through it. I got it only a couple of days before I left for the playa. But it's a, it's a real page-turner, and I, I heartily welcome, and I hope you will welcome, our good friend, Daniel Pinchbeck. Hey there, it's very, very wonderful to be speaking at Burning Man again. Um, the last year of my talk here was really one of the high points of my life, I think. It was just really nice to be communing with this community and talk about the stuff that I've been thinking about and writing about. And it was really wonderful also to hear Eric's talk, or at least some of it. And it's, we, have, um, we have a lot of creative tension around these subjects. Uh, we actually have been working on a project together, Evolver. We did a prototype of a magazine. There's kind of a larger business model behind it that we've helped develop. 
And in the magazine, we also kind of worked through our, our tensions around these questions of like prophecy and transformation, and it's kind of an ongoing uh, dialogue that we have, um, which uh, I, I imagine a lot of us are sort of having right now. We're trying to figure out what's happening in the world, and there seems to be this um, accelerated process of, of change and transformation, and we're trying to sort of get a handle on that in our own lives and, and what that means and, and where it might be going. So, I mean, when I um, – I'll, I'll go back and um, – since probably not everybody here knows my work, I'll go back a little bit and talk about how I sort of arrived at where I'm at, and then I'll talk about the title of the talk, Cancel the Apocalypse, why I came up with that title, which is from a Saul Williams poem. And then I really want to open it up to have time to have discussion and questions. And when I open it up, um, there's another mic. People can come up, you know, maybe make a line and ask questions and have a discussion. But I really am going to ask people to not go on tangents because I know this material is highly charged and people often want to express their own experience and, and things that they've gone through. But because there's a limited time and it may be that a lot of people want to express themselves, I want to, I want to you know, keep it pretty short and curt. And if it, people go on for too long, I'll probably cut them off uh, as nicely as I can. Okay. Um, so... Um, Basically, um, yeah, so um, my, my sort of trajectory was that um, I was a journalist in New York and I was working for different magazines, New York Times Magazine and Esquire and editing a literary magazine and, and I'd grown up in this kind of secular materialist culture. Uh, my, my parents were artists, my mother was part of the beat generation and a book editor, my dad was an abstract painter, but they'd been very secular. They had no kind of spiritual or mystical belief at all, so I grew up with this kind of materialistic um, understanding of reality, this kind of scientific materialist understanding, including the idea that death was, you know, sort of the end of everything and there wasn't any p potential for a kind of reincarnating soul or other aspects of consciousness or other aspects of being. And um, I was in my, I think I'm going to sit down. Is that, would you rather I stood up? Or, I'm going to sit down. Okay. So um, so I was in my late 20s. I just began to get very, very depressed and kind of disconsolate because I felt if, you know, this reality that I was in was all there was, I, I just was really losing interest. And I began to think to myself, where had I ever experienced another aspect of consciousness or, or something that pointed in another direction? So I remembered my psychedelic experiences in college, and I decided to go back in a very sort of scholarly and participatory way and um, discover the, the psychedelic experience for myself. And because I was a journalist, I was able to get some great assignments. Like I took ayahuasca downtown for the Village Voice, and I went to West Africa uh, to, to, for Vibe magazine and went through a uh, Bwiti initiation, taking Iboga, which is a long-lasting psychedelic, African psychedelic uh, from the equator in Africa. And um, then I went down to the Amazon, worked with the Sequoia Indians, uh, taking ayahuasca down there. Visited the Mazatec Indians, which is where um, went went to Huatla, which is where the magic mushrooms were discovered by Gordon Wasson in the 1950s, and um, sort of put myself on this initiatory relay race, you know, where I was trying to really understand um, um, what 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 these things opened up and what they meant. And um, I began to have a lot of very shamanic experiences. I mean, starting from West Africa, uh, the, the, the shamans told me things that, that seemed beyond their capacity to know about my life. And I had uh, this holy boga experience where I had kind of prophetic hints about my future, but also sort of felt like a, a guiding intelligence took me back through my uh, early childhood and my, really my life up to that point, like a go showing me... Uh, memories from uh, when my parents were breaking up and also it was really like I was just being shown how I'd been constructed as a person and all these different forces 
positive and negative, uh, creative and destructive that had been acting upon me. Uh, I saw my use of alcohol at that point. I was part of this kind of literary cocktail scene and drank too much and how it was affecting my relationships and my writing and really pulled back from alcohol after, after, that, uh, after that initiation. And, um, yeah, it was just a very, very profound experience. Um, so breaking up in the head ended up chronicling uh, my shift in worldview. Uh, I went from this secular materialist worldview to step-by-step kind of accepting that there was this shamanic or psychic reality uh, and even occult kind of dimensions to it. Uh, I had an experience with uh, DPT, which is a kind of uh, chemical uh, cousin to DMT, where I felt there was this uh, poltergeist uh, sort of unleashed in my life. And actually my friend Charity, who's in the room, had the experience with me. And um, she ended up doing an exorcism in my house because I began to have all this poltergeist phenomena, like mirrors falling off walls and strange bugs appearing. And, uh, and I had no belief in the occult. I had no matrix for understanding this stuff. So in a way, I was playing this amazing game of catch-up. I would have these experiences, and then I would really go deep into studying the Kabbalah and, and Crowley. And, and then Rudolf Steiner was very, very helpful and tried to create a kind of a foundation for seeing how these things could be possible. And so the first book really charted my shift from this um, secular materialist worldview to accepting this, this shamanic worldview. And um, that opened up huge questions. I mean, for, for me, I think that my investigation has been a very sensible, rational one. It's just like been following this line. You know, so it was like once I had accepted that the, the modern Western psyche, the modern Western uh, consciousness had shut off these other dimensions of being, had cut off the intuitive realm and the mystical realm and, and, and um, you know, to, to sort of focus on this rational, scientific uh, uh, way of knowing. Uh, and, and that those other dimensions of being had validity, then I had to take, I felt like it was necessary to take seriously these uh, other knowledge systems and what they said on many levels, uh, including their, um, their prophecies or, or what we can understand because they speak these indigenous and mythical cultures in a kind of symbolic or, or mythological language. Uh, so that really led me to 2012, which was really an attempt to uh, understand this kind of uh, collision in worldviews and um, to kind of see how you could anchor a different uh, knowledge system that would really incorporate uh, the Western trip that we've been on and, and, this, and this kind of shamanic uh, dimension of, of being in reality. Um, and um, I found... Um, I, I also, you know, because I'd accepted the shamanic worldview, sort of key to shamanism is this concept of uh, synchronicity and um, the idea that somehow there's this relationship between the uh, inner world, the psyche, and the real world, the physical world, uh, that there's actually, uh, it's not just a kind of separate dualism, that what's going on in your, in, in your you know, inner psychocosmos is, can, somehow is reflected and refracted in events that happen in the outer, in the outer world. Um, so I began to have a number of really interesting synchronicities around 2012, uh, and that, which is the end date of the Mayan calendar. Um, one, of the, one of the ones that really stayed with me, which I discuss in the book, um, was I decided to edit a book by a friend of mine. I had a small publishing company, and um, he'd written this book. It was like a, a ranting, frothing, book-length poem about corporate globalization and you know, this kind of apocalyptic vision of, of where our society is going and how it's like torn apart. 
uh, the physical world, and um, he also had ayahuasca, his ayahuasca visions in there, and he also discussed 2012, which in this poem, this book-length poem, he was seeing as kind of the collapse, like we would go into this kind of road warrior desperation at that point. And, um, you know, I kept putting off, and I read the book, I accepted it to publish, then I, for like a month or two I just couldn't deal with opening it because it was so depressing. And, um, and all, he also quotes a lot of amazing thinkers. I mean, it's, a, it's also a, a good text found, sort of foundationally for thinking through this stuff. So finally I was like, all right, I, I said I would edit Michael's book, I got to do it. So I opened it up, I started marking it up, and uh, about half an hour later there was this hideous sound out the window, and we opened the blinds, I, I lived down in Manhattan, and there was the flaming crater in the side of the World Trade Towers. And uh, it was 9-11. And Michael's book was already titled World on Fire. So stuff like that kept happening that seemed to be like signals to me that I had to really pay attention to this and, and, and go through it. And um, I, I also began to read deeply about the sort of ecological crisis uh, that we're in and, and um, really just trying to, trying to think, about, think about all the dimensions of the situation, you know, um, and um, so, yeah, so, so I think the, the book ended up being very hopeful in that I, I do feel that we are going through this transformative process and that we are moving. I mean, it's a, the book is a hypothesis. You know, I, I can't say for a fact that this is the truth. You know, it's, it seems to be my truth. It's the best that I could put together from judging, from using my empirical consciousness, from paying attention to my intuition, from studying what's been going on in my life and the lives of people around me. And um, I, 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 for me, I, I do think that we are moving into another phase of human consciousness and that this is a uh, timed evolutionary process, uh, much like uh, fetal development is a, is, a, is, a, is a very timed evolutionary process. And it's a kind of, uh, we're in this kind of non-dual situation uh, where all of these things that, that almost seem like random manifestations or chaotic manifestations of, of our situation are actually um, necessary aspects of, of this process. So you have, on the one hand, you have this kind of uh, rapid destruction of the biosphere, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more. So we really have to get over our blockages and our defense mechanisms to really understand how, how critical that situation is and, and how immediate that, that, that crisis is. And then you have this accelerated evolution of technology, uh, which is an aspect of, of the human psyche in, in evolution, and uh, how, how that technology is actually, I think, changing our understanding of the self. It's, cha it's changing our relationship to the self. Uh, you know, through the 19th and mid-20th century, we became very isolated and alienated in our kind of individuality. And I think what's happening with the development of these social networks on the Internet, it's like we're having a more, we're beginning to have a more relational sense of, of the self. Uh, that the self is, 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 you know, as an individual, we don't feel, uh, we feel more permeable. It's more like we're made up as our, of our network of, of relationships, personal relationships, media information. Uh, so we're having more and more of a sense of how uh, there isn't that, that alienated, individuated self that, that was sort of the, the construct of the modern world and that the self itself is this kind of relational process. Um, and then for me, a very crucial aspect of, of this acceleration is what's happening on, on a psychic level. And here again, there's no way to uh, quantify this. There's no, there's no way to say for a fact that this is happening. But what I, what I am experiencing is a massive upsurge in, in synchronicities and um, kind of um, manifestations. You know, like, like you think about something and it seems like it almost immediately takes place. And um, 
the way I end up describing it in the book is it's almost as if um, reality is becoming in, in subtle degrees uh, more psychically malleable or psychically available and less materially dense. So there's actually a kind of, a kind of, a kind of change happening in, in, the, in the nature of reality. And it seems to be a process that is developing and, and accelerating over time. And um, what's very interesting, so I, so I began to study this Mayan calendar material. And I would say that one of the big gaps in, in my book is that I, I didn't have the money or the time to go back to the Maya land and really hear it for the Mayans and understand the indigenous Mayan relationship to all of this. So the book, what I ended up doing is looking at it more intellectually. I mean, I interviewed uh, Jose Arguelles uh, and um, synthesized his ideas um, with uh, John Major Jenkins and Carl Johan Kalman, who have been kind of like these three visionary scholar prophets who've been looking at this Mayan calendar material and really trying to understand what it means. And um, basically, like, you know, we, we, have, we have developed this um, understanding um, that, you know, we are the most advanced civilization that ever existed, and our knowledge system is, you know, what is, you know, that is the best. And these other, these other civilizations had less knowledge than we do. But it may actually be that they possessed more knowledge in certain respects and, and in some ways a higher knowledge system. And, and it may be that the um, Mayans really, really were kind of uh, in their own way kind of scientists, um, sort of uh, shamanic scientists. And for about a, a thousand years, the Toltec and the Mayan civilization was very much focused on figuring out what this date in the future would, would be, um, which it seems to be indicated is a kind of transition from uh, either the fourth world to the fifth world or the fifth sun and the sixth sun. Um, and um, they did it through ritual, through using psychedelics, downloading transmissions. They did it through astronomy. They were totally focused on the movements of the planets. Uh, and what, what seems to be the, the 2012, December 21st date is this conjunction where the um, sun uh, rises on the winter solstice in the center of the uh, dark rift, which is at the center of the Milky Way. And the Mayans apparently referred to this dark rift as the uh, cosmic mother or even as a black hole. And it's only in the last few years that um, our scientists, astronomers, have found there is a huge black hole there. So it's sort of like they had this uh, privileged information uh, about this conjunction. What's that? Yeah, yeah, can you all hear me? Sorry. Can you hear me well? Is this better? Okay, cool. Sorry. Yeah, just tell me if I drift away from the mic and I'll, and I'll pull right up. Okay. So, so what does this conjunction mean? I mean, John Major Jenkins suggests that you know, there's this kind of cosmic crossing that takes place. And it's like we're crossing the uh, galactic equator. And they had this image of this kind of cosmic cross. And it might be that just in the way if you look at the north and south uh, poles of, of the Earth, when you go below uh, the equator, magnetic fields operate in a, in a different, you know, in the opposite. They spin in the opposite way. There might be a kind of uh, reverse spin that takes place when, when, you, when you transition across this galactic equator. It might be from physical to psychophysical or something. You know, we don't really, we don't really have a language for it. Uh, and, you know, I, I found Jose Arguelles' work really incredibly interesting and, and magical. Uh, he, he was one of the most complex figures that I deal with in the book because on the one hand, I think that he's absolutely extraordinary and is, you know, transmitting information that's very valuable. But then I also feel that he somehow lost his plot and um, got sort of possessed by these kind of archetypal forces that he was working with. Uh, he kind of believes that he's an uh, incarnation of... Paco Votan, and I, and I completely support that that might be the case. Um, however, he's identified with, 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 that, with that figure, and he sort of speaks 
as if he's in that sort of magical, almost like pharaonic consciousness. Um, and um, you know, I'm very interested in the idea of the archetypes. And, and sort of one one thinker who's very important in the book is Carl Jung, and Jung talks about how this kind of archetypal material that the, the archetypes have this kind of reality uh, that, that and they they constellate in the human world over time they they wait for the right moment to constellate and often there's kind of like phases in their constellation so for instance this whole concept of the apocalypse is a, is an archetype that's been constellating in the western psyche over the last 2000 years and um you know i i do offer the hypothesis that we're in that time of the apocalypse uh, but that also has to be understood properly. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I'll come back to that in a second. So for me, Jose Arguelles somehow got got taken by this archetype um, and um, went too far into this kind of intuitive, magical reality and um, offered this system, this channeled uh, system of a calendar, the 13-moon system, and basically suggested that, um, I think a very brilliant concept, that um, if you think about what's wrong with our civilization, uh, what, what, the, what the basic problem in it is, um, you know, we think it's patriarchy, we think it's capitalism, but what he ended up considering was that it's actually we have a uh, wrong relationship to time. We've become uh, alienated from natural time. And um, before 5,000 years ago, uh, you know, cultures, tribal cultures were, were linked into the lunar calendar and the lunar cycles. And then when there was this kind of rise of uh, patriarchal, dominator, hierarchical civilization, uh, in, you know, roughly in Egypt and Babylon and so on, they switched from a lunar calendar to a solar calendar. So instead of following the natural rhythms of, of, of the planetary motion, they, uh, made a, they divided the year into an arbitrary circle and made arbitrary months out of it. So now the Gregorian calendar that we've inherited has no connection to the moon cycles. So what Jose argues is that we don't, you know, the, the calendar is a kind of a subliminal metaprogramming device for consciousness. And we don't really recognize it but, it, but it, but it's holding us in this kind of frequency. And if the calendar is artificial and alienated, it actually uh, sort of alienates us from, from the rhythms of, of the natural world and, and the real world. And we end up uh, becoming more and more out of balance until everybody in the culture goes crazy. Um, and it's very interesting, you know, I think. Um, I mean, so, so a lot of the book became this investigation of, of different ways of looking at time and how the tribal cultures had a different time and the aboriginal cultures had a different time. And then, these, these, you know, the, the, for the aboriginal cultures, it's um, it means of the origin. So every, every day is, is the origin point. There was never a fall of man. And their rituals are designed to sort of maintain harmony, maintain, maintain reality in its proper balance. Uh, then when you went into these mythical cultures, it became more about cycles. So you have the cycle, the Hindus have the cycle of the yugas that were now in perhaps towards the end of the Kali Yuga. Uh, the Egyptians have the procession of the equinoxes, which is this 26,000 year cycle. Um, you know, that so, so, so they saw time as, as cyclical. Uh, and then we went into, uh, starting really with, um, uh, kind of the Greeks and so on. We went into this more like linear model of time, where time was a, was a linear progression, and finally, where where every moment of time was the same as every other moment. Like Newtonian time is like uh, time is equivalent to space. Absolute time is equivalent to absolute space. So um, what Arguelles is offering, and this philosopher who I discuss in the book, who's absolutely amazing, Gene Gebser, also discusses, is that time might actually be qualitative rather than simple quant quantitative. That our whole model of, of, of thinking about time, it's like we got, we got so obsessed with, uh, with matter. You know, we, we became total materialists. So, so we tend to think about time as a spatial quantity. So we talk about having enough time, wasting time, spending time. 
Uh, and, and all of those ways of thinking about time as a spatial quantity that you can somehow chase after and, and kill time or whatever is, it has nothing to do with the actuality of time. The time is actually a, a qualitative uh, domain uh, that operates really differently. So, and that seems to be what the original Mayan calendar uh, has imprinted in it. There are these kind of cycles that are almost like harmonic uh, patterns where, where days have kind of uh, harmonic resonance with other days in, in, the, in the cycle. And your, your birth date kind of places you in this kind of harmonic uh, matrix. So, yeah, so although I ended up critiquing the dream spell and, and his uh, certain certainty that it's the only answer for humanity, I definitely found that he was an, an amazing thinker and very, very powerful and useful. And then the person who probably amazed me the most was Carl Johann Kalman, who wrote a book called The Mind Calendar and the Transformation of Consciousness. And um, sorry, this is a lot of information. Can you guys sort of follow? Yeah. Okay, cool. So Kalaman um, basically looked at the, uh, that the main pyramids in Maya land were these nine-step pyramids. And he began to uh, come up with this thesis that they were presenting this nine-stage process in the evolution of consciousness. Uh, the, the, the Zulkan, which is the sacred sort of day count of the Mayas, is this 13 by 20 matrix. So what he ended up putting together was this model where these nine stages are, is, a, is, is an acceleration where each stage is 20 times faster in linear time and has a 13-part kind of energy, energy cycle where there's light and dark energies that are related to different Mayan gods. And uh, it's absolutely mind-blowing work, I mean, and it works so well. So the bottom stage goes back 16, point, 16 billion years, roughly Big, big Bang time. Uh, and then you get the next stage is um, 800 million years, I guess, and then uh, 20 million years, 40 million years. Um, I mean, I have it in, in the book. I'm, my math skills are mediocre. But until we're now in these, these much more accelerated phases. So there was a phase that began like 5,120 years ago, uh, and that was when we sort of stepped into law and civilization. I feel like I'm competing with like some kind of sound. Oh, all right. Anyway, um, I guess that's Burning Man. What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so, so, um, so, and then the next phase after that began in 1755, which is right when the Industrial Revolution started. And now we're in a phase that started in 1999, which is right when the sort of Internet got going, and we had this meshing together, this planetary mind. And then there'd be another phase. So this, this phase that we're in now is just 12, you know, like roughly 12 point something years. And there's one final phase, which I think is just 260 days. So what he's basically arguing is that in each of these uh, cycles, the same amount of development is happening, the same amount of evolution of consciousness, novelty, new information is taking place. And it's just happening on these much faster scales. So but we're, now, we're now experiencing in roughly one year what people were experiencing uh, before 1999 in roughly... 20 years in terms of change, development, creation, destruction, and what people were experiencing before 1755 in uh, roughly 394 years or something. So, you know, once again, you can't, it's, it can't be quantitatively proved, but you have to really think it through. And, and for me, it feels very legitimate. And, and, and one interesting concept is in the 60s, you know, 50s through the 70s, there was this big idea of a generation gap of being like roughly 20 years. And it was like people who were 20 years uh, distance from each other in age literally couldn't understand each other. They were like at a different frequency of consciousness. 
And now I think that that doesn't exist anymore, that really the division, the divide now is really just between people who are kind of staying uh, up with new ideas, staying open to, trans, you know, to what's happening, and people who are kind of retrenching and closing down in uh, older belief systems because they're too scared or uncomfortable with, with what's happening. So um, I think the, the, the Kalamans thing is a very powerful tool uh, for thinking about the situation. I don't, I don't, you know, know. And there, there's also, there's a lot of uh, kind of bickering between Kalaman, Jenkins, and Arguilas. And I, I discussed that in this handout that I gave. It's a chapter from the book. And there are things about Kalaman's system which seem a little bit off, too, but it seems like an incredibly interesting model. And, and in, this, in this kind of model that he puts out, there, there's energies. There's a positive period, within positive periods of development, and then more like destructive periods, which are, uh, there's a destru- the most destructive period. There's sort of a period associated with Quetzalcoatl, where the new form of consciousness is, is formed. Then there's the next period is associated with Tezcatlipoca, who's Quetzalcoatl's kind of nemesis. Quetzalcoatl is the feathered serpent, uh, and I'll talk about him a bit more in a bit. Tezcatlipoca is the smoking mirror. He's the god of black magic and the, ja- and the jaguar. And so um, in the previous phase, the Quetzalcoatl phase was like 1913 to 1931. Tezcatlipoca phase was 1931 to 1950. So during in, the, in this next phase that we're in, the year 2007 is the sort of Quetzalcoatl phase, and roughly the year 2008 is the Tezcatlipoca phase. So Kalaman ends up arguing that 2008 might see a kind of dramatic uh, system meltdown of, of the current system that we're in, and all of these crises that we can sort of see kind of burbling on the, on the horizon whenever we look at the news or really think about what's going on are going to come to a head at that point. And um, for me, that gives us, who are beginning to understand this material, if we, wanted, if we are willing to sort of take it, take it seriously, at least you know, that, that it gives us a grave responsibility in, in this short term that's ahead of us um, to, to, to really um, not only sort of understand the situation but, but act at a, at a much deeper level uh, in terms of our responsibilities for, this, for the situation. So... Um, yeah, so there's a, the, 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 the new book ranges over a lot of material. I talk about the crop circles in England, which uh, I spent a, su- a couple summers in England studying and um, ended up feeling that when you look at all the evidence, it's not possible that they're only human-made uh, and that, th- therefore, there's some other kind of messaging going on. And I, although it's very, very indeterminate, and the deeper you go in trying to understand any of the formations, the more kind of counter-information you get. And um, what I ended up sort of suggesting is that these crop circles are somehow a manifestation of a galactic intelligence, a higher intelligence, and that they're very much geared to this uh, prophetic time frame that we're in, and they're a, a teaching on the nature of reality that's geared specifically to help us negotiate this, this shift. And uh, part of the teaching, a lot of the, a lot of the crop circles use kind of uh, minglings of... Uh, sacred symbols and fractals and symbols from different mystical traditions. So they seem to be suggesting this uh, integration between science and, and mythological thought. Um, the crop circles are also centered around Avebury and Stonehenge in England. And um, those are 
sort of they were temples and calendars of, of solar lunar integration. Stonehenge was actually used to predict lunar eclipses, and it was, it was built in such a way that it would you know sustain itself to this time, perhaps intentionally. Perhaps the people who built Stonehenge, the Neolithic culture, recognized that their kind of intuitive relationship to the cosmos was was being diluted. Like this another this other energetic was coming into the planet, and so they left this behind as as an exemplary uh, sort of form of their knowledge system, which was really about this this very very precise. Uh, understanding of, of, of uh, planetary dynamics and, and, and the relationship of the Earth to the solar system. Uh, so once again, that links to what I was saying about the calendar, that um, there might be a, a shift that we could make in, you know, as, as a tool, as an instrument, like a, a new calendar or a new timing frequency that would help us get through this transition, although for various reasons I don't think it's going to be Arguelles's. Um, and um, the other thing that the crop circles really taught me was the, um, that they're very much about the nature of consciousness. And what I discovered as I spent time with the phenomenon is, first of all, an incredible synchronicity vortex. Um, you know, you, you, people have amazing experiences. When you go into new ones, there's a huge energetic charge. You basically want to sink to the ground and just sit there and meditate for a long time. Um, and um, But I noted that when people came into the phenomenon, whatever their kind of belief set and setting was, is what sort of came refracted back to them. So if they came in as skeptics, they would find, they would meet people who claimed to make all the formations, they would find broken stems and boards. You know, if they came in um, as new agers, they would see, you know, they'd have light body activations and see balls of light. You know, if they came in as kind of UFOologists, they would see, you know, UFOs, they would see black helicopters chasing them and stuff like that. So I, I began to recognize that the phenomenon was a teaching and how consciousness somehow co-creates reality, that, uh, that, that it's a very participatory situation. And what your sort of belief set and setting is, is what you're allowed to kind of get back from the cosmos. Um, so that was part of that. And the book also covers the alien abduction phenomenon, um, I think, in a really useful way. I talk about different philosophers. I really try to mesh together aspects of the Western philosophical tradition with this uh, shamanic uh, understanding. Uh, and, you know, for instance, uh, uh, Heidegger talks about how his definition of a world is a whole way of relating to, to you know, time and space and, and the earth. And so, and so a world is actually a, a state of consciousness. So when the Hopis talk about this transition from the fourth world to the fifth world, they could, they could be talking about a, a, a change in the nature of consciousness. Um, so let's see. Yeah, so, so that, um, that sort of brings up a little bit of, of where I got to in this book. Uh, I mean, I also had this very uh, complex experience in the Amazon in Brazil. I was working with the Santo Daime, and I had a um, transmission experience where... Uh, Santo Daime is a religion that uses ayahuasca as its sacrament, and it started in the 1920s. It's a kind of uh, integration of Christianity with these kind of rubber tappers and so on who went down to the Amazon, began to take ayahuasca with the natives, and they began to uh, receive songs and transmissions and basically um, created this religion, which is a kind of integration of uh, the um, Christianity and sort of tribal culture. So they have the mother of the forest is also the Virgin Mary. And um, how many people here know about the Supreme Court decision that happened recently with ayahuasca? Yeah. 
I think that this might be one of the most significant and extraordinary things that's happened in, in, in our recent time. It's basically, the, um, there was an, there's two Brazilian religions that use ayahuasca. One is Uneo de Vegetalis, and uh, their American leader was this guy, Jeffrey Bronfman, who was one of the heirs to the Seagram's fortune. And he was busted bringing ayahuasca into the country because it, it contains DMT, which is illegal. So um, he had the resources to fight this case and find powerful allies. And he's basically, he won at the Supreme Court level. And I think he even got the support of Catholic groups and traditional religious groups. So basically, um, ayahuasca is now available legally as a sacrament with the UDV and I think now or very, very shortly with Santo Daime also. So it's a very, very uh, powerful and important container for uh, having that experience and uh, for really, for, for really um, doing a lot of uh, ama amazing work on, on astral levels and personal levels. Uh, so, yeah, so, so anyway, so I, I was lucky enough to get this trip, go, to, go down to visit the sort of head, one of the headquarters of Santo Daime, uh, way deep in the Amazon, and we were doing this kind of initiation process where we actually learned how to make the medicine, to take care of the vine and the leaves and, and clean them and, and, and sort of process them, and all the while you drink ayahuasca during the day while you're doing this initiation, and uh, you sing songs that are prayers. And um, during this process, I also began to receive, I actually really started in Brasilia, a kind of transmission uh, that I was almost compelled to write out that, that informed me that I was a sort of vehicle of the uh, Aztec and Mayan god Quetzalcoatl, who was making his return at this time, and that this was actually this apocalyptic moment. And in the book, I really leave it up to the, to the, the reader to decide if, it, if this is something that seems... Uh, plausible to them or meaningful to them. And, you know, I, I don't claim to know the truth validity of it. It felt intuitively uh, very powerful. Um, and it also was, as I described with Jose Arguelles, it was like this struggle with this archetypal energy, which w wanted to almost like annul my uh, ego, you know, or I, I could have easily seen being possessed by it. But luckily, the shaman I was traveling with was also a Jungian psychoanalyst. And so we worked through this, this sort of relationship to the archetypes. And really, when this archetypal material constellates, you have to have your, your ego has to be kind of supple uh, and strong enough so that you can mediate the experience so that it doesn't overtake you, so that you maintain your normal, goofy human person you know, while this archetype is, is, is happening to you. Um, so that was a very uh, powerful and, and interesting process that I went through. And, and, and then um, it was interesting, too, because when I wrote the first draft of the book, I was still very attached to this experience, this kind of moral urgency. And uh, that draft absolutely sucked. My editor rejected it. And I had to then sort of go through this process of, like, despair, nihilism, feeling like it was totally impossible to write the book until I was able to just detach from any importance of that transmission and come back to it just as a writer writing something aesthetic, you know, sort of poetic, where I could, and then I was able to, to do it at a different octave or a different level. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, the book, I really offer the book as a thought experiment, and I just, I, because I'm an experiential writer and I come partially from the beat tradition, I really believe in the, the, the necessity of presenting things through your personal window, your personal experience. And, um, you know, that's just what I did. And this experience happened to me. I couldn't have not written about it. Um, it, it would have been uh, uh, deceptive, you know. Um, so, um, so that was one aspect of the book. And um, let's see, what else do I want to talk about? 
Um, oh, so I was going to talk about, yeah, so Quetzalcoatl for me as an archetype, so it's the integration of the Quetzal bird, which apparently is this beautiful long-feathered uh, bird in the, in, the, in the Amazon, with Coat, which is the serpent. So it represents the uh, union or integration of the spirit and matter, heaven and earth, what flies and what crawls. And what I see in, in, this, um, in this symbol is the idea that of uh, integrating uh, these kind of knowledge systems, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the materialist, uh, scientific, empirical consciousness uh, that we've developed in the West. is not to be rejected. It's to be, it's to be used and integrated. But then bringing back and integrating this intuitive, uh, mystical, mythological, psychic realm. And I think that that integration is one of the most profound things that's, that's happening right now. And it's a very, very uh, difficult uh, process. And, I, and by no means do I think that my book completes the process. Uh, I mean, in the book, I also talk about quantum physics and how quantum physics kind of, you know, if you read like the Tao of physics or Goswami's The Self-Aware Universe, some of this stuff was kind of banalized in, in what the bleeps we know. But there seems to be this relationship where you could say that quantum physics supports certain ideas in, oh, that's much better, right? Certain ideas in, um, you know, Eastern religion, that, that actually consciousness is fundamental to reality rather, rather than matter. Um, so it gives us this whole shift uh, in our perceptive perception. So, this, so then the question is, we're at 2006 now. How could such a massive transformation happen so quickly? You know? um, and I think that you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting situation. I, so I also wanted to note that you know, if, if, even if you didn't pay attention to the Mayan calendar, there are a lot of people, I mean, I'm reading this book called The Chaos Point uh, by a scientist, and he says that the next five years are absolutely critical, that it's either a breakdown or breakthrough for the human species. You know, he has no mystical reference to a Mayan calendar. Uh, if you look at the species extinction crisis, 25% uh, of all mammalian species are going to be extinct in the next 30 years. So if we're somehow going to, you know, and we can see what's happening with climate change and that acceleration, uh, we can see what's happening with the, the forests. You know, there's all these feedback loops are now being triggered in the system. So the, the forests, you know, are burning, releasing more carbons, more forests burn. Polar ice caps are melting. They keep melting faster. I'm sure a lot of you saw the inconvenient truth. Um, so we somehow have to face this, 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 this sort of disaster we have in our hands. Um, and we have to do it very quickly. If, I think basically if the human species is going to survive in any decent form, it really is going to have to take place in the next uh, two to three years. There's going to be a have, have to be a uh, very, very uh, deep transformation of consciousness and perspective. And one way I talk about it in the book is we're going to have to go from looking at ourselves as kind of individuated egos out for our own gain in this kind of uh, capitalist game to really thinking about ourselves as uh, sentient aspects of a planetary ecology and transformation. And how do we use the, the skills and the knowledge base and, and, the, and the technical capacities that we've developed to really help that, help that process and, and to uh, you know, ameliorate the, the damage that we've done uh, at, at this, up to this point. Um, and um, it's a little bit, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like a Hollywood movie in a way. I think it's like, you know, Mission Impossible, how there's always like these down-to-the-wire endings, you know, and maybe that, um, you know, God is just like a great film director, you know, and he wants us to like just get it right at the last second, you know. Um, the other, so, so, and the other aspect that interests me is, um, um, okay, so, so we're, we're going to need to deal on a, on a sort of technical, meta-strategic level with the global situation. We're going to need like a new kind of rational organizing principle for, for the planet, and we're going to need to make that happen pretty quickly. 
Um, and then, but then there's this other level, which is the psychic level, which to me is, is equally crucial. And that's where most of the people who are part of the liberal establishment, like Gore's film The Inconvenient Truth, just don't even have the capacity to address that. And I, I see that this, this psychic evolution is taking place and these synchronicities are, are happening. So the way I think about it is if you look at the 1750s, you know, people had seen lightning and had seen, you know, shocks and so on, but they had no idea that you could bring uh, lightning into, you know, bring electricity into the planet and make it into a transformative power for the whole planet. And um, once they understood that and managed to do it, and at first it was just a very weak trickle, you know, and then, and then suddenly they, in a century and a half, which is absolutely nothing in terms of evolutionary time, the whole planet got transformed, and we, we, we you know, absolutely transformed the planet through, through electricity and industrialization. So what if we're at that same moment with uh, this psychic uh, energy, psychic, psychic phenomena, and there's going to be this tipping point where we're going to learn how to access it for, for transformation uh, on a very visceral level, maybe through global psychic ceremonies or concentrations of energy. Uh, at the end of the book, I go to visit the uh, Hopi Indians and hear their prophecies from one of their elders. Um, and um, that was amazing, I, but I sort of knew all of that already. Um, but I was reading this uh, Cambridge uh, anthropologist who went down and lived with the Hopis for a few years. And this guy was a total secular materialist. And in his book, he was like, look, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but sometimes I would go to these rain dances and they would work. You know, it would be 120 degrees, clear blue sky. They would dance for 20 minutes. Clouds would gather. Rain would come. You know, and he also said that sometimes he would go to these Hopi elders and, you know, he'd have a whole list of questions for them and they would just answer the questions without him asking them one after another. You know, so but so I mean, I, to me, like I take that seriously. Like if the, the potential is for these indigenous magical tribal cultures to have had a real relationship with elemental forces, that they get influenced weather patterns. You know, how fascinating is that when you think about the climate change uh, situation that we're in, and um, you know, maybe we could re reverse that, and maybe this kind of critical threshold that we're being pushed into is the only way to force us to uh, access those latent psychic powers. Because as long as people are like relatively comfortable, they're relatively asleep. You know, it's only when people are forced into crisis that they become super inventive and super experimental. You know, so, so maybe that's one of the things that, that's taking place at this point in time. So, but yeah, before I'm going to open it to questions in uh, a minute, um, but I just wanted to also talk about this title of the talk, which was Cancel the Apocalypse, which is from a Saul Williams poem. And um, what occurred to me over time, and I still feel there's a little too much of it in this book, is that a lot of us who seem to be uh, in this process of, of moving, emerging into this new consciousness, have a lot of anger against the civilization that we've come out of. You know, we, we, we hate it, really, in, in a lot of respects. Um, and um, there's this kind of cathartic desire for a, a flame-out of that civilization uh, that we sort of almost want to see it go to hell and have like a road warrior scenario where it all breaks down. And um, I think that we really need to look at that because I think that's another shadow projection. And we have to somehow uh, deprogram ourselves from that shadow projection. And really, we don't do not want the uh, we want we do not want the system that is existing now to break down at all. We actually want it to be more like a supersession. We need to actually create a different infrastructure as this current one supports us. 
Uh, it could be, you know, I mean, the, the Berlin Wall is one amazing example of a gentle revolution. Like, nobody had a concept that uh, the Berlin Wall could just fall without a shot being fired. And then suddenly it did. Suddenly the consciousness of those people was, was just prepared for that, and, and it was just necessary that that happened. So it might be that we could reach a point where there would be a very quick and gentle supersession of this present order. And, and one way I'm thinking about it, uh, I think is a useful metaphor, is the idea of a snake shedding its skin. So if you think about a snake shedding its skin, that old skin has to hold together until the, the new skin can form itself. Otherwise, you'll have a dead snake. You know. So I, I, yeah. So it's just like that that energy, that, that that almost cathartic desire to see a flame out of the current civilization is, I think, one that we have to look at and, and address and, act, and actually move away from. Um, thank you. And yeah, one other thing that's come up that I just wanted to put out there is a lot of us have now learned, you know, I mean, a couple of years ago, synchronicities would happen. Everybody would be like, wow, that was a crazy synchronicity. Now a lot of us are just in that flow of recognizing that there's a total aspect of this psychic kind of field forming itself. Okay, So um, if that's the case... I mean, what I've had in certain downloads and, and psychedelic experiences is that now we're at the next level. It's like, okay, it's like, you know, the cosmos is almost saying to us, okay, you've learned that, you know, now make use of it. You know, how, how do you int- intentionalize that? How do you, you know, what tools can you use to, you know, to, to operate at a, at, a, at a much higher level? Because we're being really challenged here. And um, I think, like, magical, some magical tools may become really useful, like visualization, you know, having really setting a proper intention and, and, then, and then visualizing it and, use, and using, uh, you know, different techniques to, to bring it into manifestation. Um, so that's another aspect. Um, cool. So I'm going to open this up to questions. And that was really fun to talk with you about this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> So anybody who wants to ask a question, maybe just come up and hang out over here. You want to start? Cool. Hi. So I uh, I came to your talk last year, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for that. Um, you had mentioned that you said after examining a lot of the evidence around crop circles that uh, you thought that it just wasn't possible that humans could have done it all, and, um, and that it opened you up to a lot of things. And I was just hoping that you could speak a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was... Um, in the book, I describe my own synchronistic experience. Like, um, I'm not, I'm not going to go over that one. But there's basically scientific evidence that, um, that there's been pu- papers published in peer-reviewed science journals, which basically uh, dis- discuss what happens or analyze what happens to the plants in these formations. And there's this kind of node lengthening takes place, burst nodes, that, that according to these scientists, these biophysicists, wouldn't, there's no way that um, just pushing them down would do that, and that it has to be some kind of uh, sort of energy, electromagnetic or microwave coming from above. And so that, those papers are now in peer-reviewed science journals, and they have not been refuted in any way. Um, and um, then there's the whole question of laying out these formations, the landscaping of them, the the kind of perfection of them. But it is really fascinating and really and really tricky. But it's it's clear to me that like um, if if this is not being made by people, if it's being made by higher intelligence, they could make their intentions clear. So it, the fact that they don't is, is I think part of the process that we're really being challenged to discriminate for ourselves what we think of this phenomenon. And it's a sort of you know when you get into it, it's like an individual process. Um, 
The other thing that I think this phenomenon really reveals is that we, since we've come from this scientific, rational culture, we've got this sort of fixed idea of alien or higher intelligence as being very technological. That, like when I talked to this guy from SETI, he was like, oh, if there were really aliens, they would just leave an Encyclopedia Galactica on our doorstep and they would give us a new, like, warp drive and stuff. You know, but actually what seems to be indicated is totally different. It's almost like uh, the, the higher intelligence is more playful. It's more like art than it is like science. It's more like Shakespeare or the Marx Brothers or Bach. You know, it's, it's more like these paradoxes and puzzles that keep opening up. And, um, you know, that for me is a very nice concept of higher intelligence. And then with, with the Maya, uh, you know, there's similar kind of pranks. I mean, even the word Maya, Arguelles pointed out, you know, is uh, in the Hindu tradition or Buddhist tradition has a meaning. And it's got a, it's very important. It means the uh, illusion of the physical realm or it means the magical creative power of the gods in creating the illusion of the physical world. So, you know, so it's almost like a hint to us that, that the civilization is, is like um, kind of like these, these master puzzlers who, who came in to, to do this magic for us, you know. Uh, my, my question is, um, the, the, when, when you, in terms of 2012 and, the, and, the, and December 12th or December 21st, um, that it almost seems like a singularity, like a like, like an opening or like the fitting through the eye of a needle. That it, it's almost like an ultimate healing for for mankind. And so, where where, where does it, the line drawn, or, or what's the relationship, um, in your view, between the, the, the healing that happens um, in the human family on a on an actual level that that's outside of time, outside of any measuring that humans might come up with, which 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 is viable in that it may actually become a, a, a new story and an actual healing compared to what seems to be the prediction of that healing with 2012. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I, I recently went and got, I, I took my daughter to get a hug from uh, Amma, Amachi, who's the hugging saint from India, the Divine Mother. And, um, you know, the, 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 the Mayans called this uh, black hole the Cosmic Mother, and so we're lining up, you know, to, toward to get to get in the relationship with the cosmic mother. And going to see Amma, it was like, you know, you get there, you dress up, you know, you get your stuff together, you wait in line, you know, finally you're like up in this moment where you move towards Amma and you're on your knees, and then she gives you this wonderful hug, and then you move off. So I almost think that this December 21st, 2012 thing is like getting our cosmic hug from the mother, you know. <laughs> And the other thing is that I'm really not fixated on that date. I mean, for me, it's really about, I don't, you know, who knows? Our reality may be so shifted by that point. It's this next few years which are so critical. And um, we really have to think about, um, you know, how to really be strategic and, and, and cunning. And, and, you know, when, when, I, when, I, when I'm at Burning Man every time, I'm just, like, struck by this paradise that we've created here. And, and the art is so extraordinary and how um, the, the genius of the people here and how, you know, if there was a platform for that to be fully expressed through the media, uh, you know, it, w it could cause a very fast shift in, in human consciousness and really give us a much more positive uh, vision of what's possible. Uh, and that's sort of what I've been trying to manifest through, through this attempt to start this company, Evolver, which has been, a, for me, a very interesting process in learning about the business world and really thinking, my, my thinking was, if you think about the uh, business culture as being the most destructive force on the planet, uh, you know, alchemically, the, the poison is the medicine. 
You know, so so we have to actually use those tools that are so efficient and and hierarchical and organized to uh, to create a different system. You know, and for me, I see a lot of the hope could be the internet. I mean, um, one idea is the uh, every time there's a profound new media technology. Uh, it creates a new form of social organization. So you could never have had mass democracy until you had the Gutenberg printing press. Okay. So now we have the internet, and it's pointing us towards an incredible new form of social organization. Like, um, you know, we could we could have a, a gift economy through the internet. We could, you know, really really create uh, whole different systems and structures for how people relate on, on, a, on a social level, on a societal level. And then you see things like MySpace, which is basically nothing. It's just a toy, but they have like a hundred million people on it. You know, people are so urgently desiring these new forms of connectivity, but they really haven't, there's no tool yet that's, that's fully manifest what's possible. Um, so that, that's something that I'm hoping, and I put that out there because I know so many people at Burning Man are, are visionary computer database digital types, and you know, if they want to talk to me about how to activate that, like I definitely have some ideas, and I'm working with friends who've got a lot of ideas about it. I was hoping that you could comment on uh, this kind of, I don't know, it's like a collective rumor, this thought, the idea of intention, putting intention out into the world to create a crop circle that is the street map of Burning Man. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess you could give it a shot, but I, I do know, and I, I have a friend, Mark Healy, is he here? He's maybe going to come to Burning Man. I gave, a, I gave a talk with him at the Boom Festival in Portugal, but he did a bunch of guided meditations with friends in Glastonbury, and, and they did have, he said, crop circles pop up. So, um, you know, I think that, that it, w- it would be interesting to, if we really took that phenomenon seriously, to then think about what kind of interaction is possible with that intelligence. You know. Yeah, so um, I find a bit of a paradox in uh, in 2012 that perhaps you could elucidate. I'll illustrate it just with two brief uh, sentences here. One is how could you anticipate qualitative time with uh, quantitative time? You know, um, how is it that we can have a quantitative, uh, you know, how do we have two, three years, six years before we all of a sudden don't have quantitative time or consciousness of that? The other is, and I think these are both symptomatic of the same essential source, um, so I don't know what this 2012 transition is going to be. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I can't say what it's going to be like. But I got very interested in this philosopher, Gene Gebser, and his thing is he's a German philosopher. There's a whole really ch- good chapter about him in the book, and he talks about how there's this aboriginal time, which is this origin point time, where you're always at the origin point. Then there's this magical time, which is kind of like instantaneous telepathic time. Then there's this mythical, mythological time, which is cyclical. Then we went into this modern, rational, spatialized time, where we made time linear. And he says that basically um, the next level of consciousness, the next relationship to time, would not be negating those previous forms. It would actually be seeing them all as simultaneous kind of veils, like diaphanous veils. So we would still be in that linear progressive time, yet we would also be fully in that cyclical time and in that origin time and in that instantaneous time. So his book was called The Ever-Present Origin. And so for me, it's not necessarily... We, we may have a very different relationship to time, instrumentalized differently, but it may not be that we forfeit linear progressive time, you know, um, that'll just be one, one kind of vector with which to think about time or, or which to be in time. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It's just that uh, it's not that I thought we would forfeit the quantitative aspect. It's just that where's the qualitative aspect now because I, I sort of think that it's here now. Sure. Okay. So I'll go on to the second version of the same thing. 
is if consciousness is the ground of all being, as you sort of like uh, deal with in the Amitka Swami, Rudolf Steiner uh, chapter, then how is it that as you bring conscious awareness to the uh, possibility of uh, eschatological sort of like 2012, you're not actually contributing to the singularity as opposed to, um, you know, what it feels like you're trying to do is different than uh, contributing to the singularity. Um, I think you understand Right. Well, since it's all about consciousness, it's all about awareness. So the book itself is like part of a self-fulfilling prophecy, perhaps, you know, where it's uh, by raising awareness, uh, you know, the synchronicities keep growing and, and the mesh keeps happening. Um, and it's just about, you know, the, the, the articulation uh, actually shifts uh, the nature of the reality, you know. But we need, we need better tools for articulating uh, on a lot of different levels, you know. Another whole aspect of the book, uh, at the end of the book, is about uh, sexuality and consciousness and relationships. And um, probably the part that's worked out the, the, the least successfully in certain respects in the book, it was part of my own process. But for me, that's one of the really interesting aspects of, of Burning Man, is that there's this incredible renegotiation of energy between the sexes taking place. And uh, in, in it's both a beautiful dance and uh, often a kind of battle zone. Uh, but uh, it, it's a really fascinating aspect of, of what seems to be happening here. I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit on uh, what your thoughts are between uh, the, the U.S. government, which right now is uh, a leader of uh, war and some very dirty economics and um, you know various other things, and the peoples of the world and how you imagine in this very short amount of time uh, – those two entities addressing one another to go towards an era of, uh, of a more enlightened time. Um, I don't. I don't totally know. I mean, um, I don't know how it's going to work out. I think there might be a collapse of the global financial system. There's going to be a desperate attempt for the current ruling elites to hold power. But I also think that there may be a mass defection from from the current paradigm because it's more and more overtly obvious that it's just it's just stuck it's like it's like a it's like a snake eating its tail you know um, and um, as I said it's going to require very skillful means for those people who like us and us particularly are representing this new consciousness we're going to have to go out into the field just the way people from Burning Man went to New Orleans we're going to have to go to Africa and China and the Middle East and be the peacemakers and, and, and represent the new consciousness and sit down with the with these uh, you know factions and, and, and these ancient hatreds and uh, work through them you know uh, we, we're, we're going to have to take full responsibility for the situation or, or we're not going to get it done you know In your, um, in your first book, you talked about, um, I want to ask a practical question and a, and a philosophical question. Um, the practical question uh, had to do with uh, your vision about what we can reasonably expect to happen. You've talked today about new business strategies and new media technologies coming to bear. In your first book, you mentioned the possibility of a world gathering of experts or people who, who had ideas about how to do this. Um, in the, in the second one, you expanded on those ideas in certain essential ways. I just want to give you an opportunity to share more of those thoughts and of your recent thinking about what we can reasonably expect to, to see with the corporate structures and with how these media, you know, just more, more discussion about that. 
Yeah, there's going to have to be some uh, breakthrough in terms of the progressive and liberal arena, which has been very factionalized and fragmented. I mean, it's, it's sort of the natural uh, state of people who are more progressive and liberal to be non-hierarchical. And so, you know, you have like, you know, even things like simple exams like the Sierra Club and the Rainforest Action Network kind of competing for the same members, throwing fundraisers on the same days, rather than really there being councils where you get everybody together and just be like, look, how do we efficiently separate out what everybody is doing and sort of apportion it out? And um, it's really about like sort of overcoming the certain negative aspects of postmodern individuality. Uh, I'm very interested in um, What is Enlightenment magazine, the Andrew Cohen, Ken Wilber magazine. They're doing a lot of work about the concept of uh, natural hierarchy. Okay, So you know, we somehow have to go from what Wilber calls a postmodern flatland to uh, ex- accepting a kind of, kind of natural hierarchies, which is you know, basically every human soul is completely equal and an aspect of the totality and on its own soul's journey, yet people have different skill sets, different capacities, and somehow that has to be honored. You know, some people, you know, I mean, Ken Wilber talks about how, you know, um, Nobody would want to see him play blas- basketball. You know, nobody would want to see Shaquille O'Neal. You know, think philosophically. You know, um, so that so that we really need to somehow move towards uh, a way of developing uh, natural hierarchies in a, in a self-organizing system. And, and once again, I think that inter- inter- uh, sort of internet platform could make that really uh, uh, possible on a lot of different levels. We could create kind of like trust-based networks. So somebody's actions, activities in this in this network over time would then would then have a trace. Then you would see like, oh, this guy is really cool. He does what he says. He's manifested this and that. You know, and there's and there's the record of that. You know, uh, and hopefully, you know, as this, this this sort of critical nature of the situation, you know, continues to just become more and more glaringly apparent. You know, it's going to force a much deeper collaborative mentality on, on the part of people who are sort of holding this, this aspects of this new paradigm and new consciousness, whether they're ecological designers or economists or, you know, mystics, you know. Yeah, I did want to mention one thing, which I, when I was talking about the apocalypse, I mean, as I said, I think this time is the apocalypse. But if you look up the meaning of that word, one meaning for it is uh, uncovering or revealing. So it's not necessarily a destructive process. It's a time when everything that was hidden becomes known, becomes manifest. And um, so, you know, in a way, like if you have more and more beautiful and amazing, you know, if, you, if you've got beautiful and amazing things in you, more and more of that is going to come out. If you've got horrible demons and, and anger, more and more of that is going to come out. And that really seems to be part of the process that's going on right now. This, this revealing all is happening so quickly. Like nothing can be, no conspiracy can, can, can be hidden anymore. Things just, just come to the light of day so quickly. I, th- I think that the, the, the fear is what holds us back from thinking through uh, the scenarios. And um, on so many levels, what this time is, is a, is a training ground in learning to confront and overcome fear. And that's why the whole shamanic experience is so critical, because basically the, the shaman, the shamanic experience goes, takes you through the death and rebirth uh, process, you know, where, you're, where you sort of have the symbolic dismemberment and these other realities, and, and, you, and you come back and you recognize that, you know, you can have that process, that there's still continuity, that there, that there, you know, I mean, I argue in the book, I think there's good evidence for reincarnation also, you know, so, so you know, you have to, you have to overcome uh, your fear. Uh, and uh, it's a training, you know, and I, and I think all of us are going through that training on, on different levels. And, and the society that we're in is, is so focused on maintaining that fear frequency because that's really the only way it can hold things in check, you know. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, but I, and I do think that we can go through a much more rational reordering of, of, the, of our systems and look at the ideas of uh, Buckminster Fuller or Herbert Marcuse. You know, Marcuse talked about how, you know, we, we could have created a global leisure society post-Second World War, but we instituted this insane work culture instead. You know, industrialization should have freed people's time up to play, you know, but instead they created these, this, this whole structure that enmeshed people in this kind of nightmare. And Buckminster Fuller said that in the future, the right thing to do would be to pay most people not to work. You know, you would just want them living in their home communities and playing with their kids and telling stories and doing whatever they wanted to do because it's so much more destructive for the planet for people to be driving cars, you know, going to work, using toner cartridges and, you know, all these gadgetry, you know. Um, so I think ideas like that are still, I mean, a lot of the 60s ideas need to be, like, rephrased and, and, and re-looked at right now. Uh, and for me, like I talk about the 60s as being, and breaking open the head, as being a kind of first stage in a process of shamanic initiation on a, on a collective level. And that it wasn't able to complete itself at that point because there weren't enough kind of people in place to hold that energy. There weren't enough old wise men and shamans. But now we're going, perhaps going through a second stage of that process and, and we have enough uh, wisdom uh, on an individual and collective level to kind of hold that, hold that energy of, the, of, the, of that birthing process. Are you often talking about the, are you emphasizing the shamanic experience and its importance, especially with psychedelic drugs? And I'm wondering um, what your thoughts are on how important it is for the individual or for each individual to go through this, this whole mystic, um, you know, direct experience, or how much or how far just like, you know, a certain amount of shamans going through this and then kind of transmitting that is sort of like what we need or if that's, yeah. That's a great question. My answer would be the second. I mean, if you look at um, the tribal cultures, it's only like one out of 15 or 20 people wants to go through the shamanic process. And, and, and it's also interesting because we've, we've kind of like new age kind of whitewashed shamanism in a way. Like we made shamans into these culture heroes and these healers. But actually in tribal societies, they tend to be deeply ambiguous figures. They're often kind of in a liminal zone, like off to the edge of the tribe. They can heal, but they can also curse and kill and destroy. So, um, you know, we have to look at that too. You know, I mean, and there I think there's... You know, I, I incorporate the kind of Christianity into my into my thought system, and that um, I think that um, that sort of ethical evolution that that, that 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 we haven't really been able to hold that frequency yet either is part of is part of what's coming. You know, and that's very much the the daimi idea is that the second coming of Christ is you know entering a kind of heart based uh, consciousness. Uh, it's not an individual you know Schwarzenegger like um, Messiah as, as the fundamentalists think. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think that it's a, a threshold of individuals go through that shamanic transformation process and they hold that frequency for the collective, you know. But, but the, the, you know, the, the, um, the mainstream culture at this point is not allowing, is trying not to, to fight against that kind of realization or recognition. How did Rudolf Steiner influence your thinking and work? Yes, yeah, Steiner became incredibly important to me. I think he's absolutely amazing. And it's so many levels, you know. I mean, um, when I had this um, occult experience with this kind of genie or, or poltergeist or whatever, I, I ran in, after that I ran into a friend who'd been studying Rudolf Steiner for years, and he laid out all of this, this whole Steinerian cosmology in one night. And part of it is that uh, Steiner takes the, the devil, uh, which in the Christian tradition is just this unitary kind of 
entity and splits it up into these different forces that are working on humanity all the time. And he talks about them as Araman and Lucifer. And Araman is the uh, evil earth spirit of the Persian uh, Zoroastrian tradition. Uh, so it's the sort of spirit of the demon of kind of materialism and materiality. It kind of pulls us down towards, uh, you know, sterility, technology. And uh, then the other one is Lucifer. Lucifer literally means light bringer. So, so Lucifer draws us up towards like beauty, glamour, art, you know, uh, but, but it's also uh, haughtiness and pride and arrogance. You know, so I think that um, Burning Man and, and the, the psychedelic uh, illumination in general is a very, is a very luciferic uh, phenomenon. Um, and, but we need that. I mean, Steiner actually talked about that we were in this age of Araman, that Araman was ascendant, and that we were going to have to rediscover the luciferic uh, inspiration to, to get through this threshold. And I think that um, uh, Steiner would have, been, uh, would have very much recognized what we're doing here in the time that we're in. I think there may have been one or two more questions for Daniel, but unfortunately we reached the capacity of the mini-disc we were recording on, and I didn't notice it in time to put in a new disc. Also, uh, I'd like to point out that the poet Michael Brownstein, who Daniel mentions in this talk, also gave a Palenque Norte lecture at the 2004 Burning Man Festival, and I podcast that talk in our ninth edition of the Psychedelic Salon. You can find a link to that program if you follow the podcast link on the homepage at matrixmasters.com. And if you haven't yet read a copy of Michael's book, World on Fire, you may want to give it a read. I highly recommend it. Well, I'd better wrap this up for now since this program has already gone way past our normal time limit. But before I go, I want to thank Daniel once again for his continuing support of the Planque Norte Lecture Series at Burning Man. He's been one of our featured speakers since the beginning, and I'm speaking, I'm sure, for all of us here in the salon when I pass along our sincere thanks for his inspirational talks, books, and great conversations. Also, my thanks go out to Darren, Mark, Michael, Brian, and the rest of the In Theon Village crew and supporters. You all really came through under some difficult circumstances from time to time, and our lecture series was a success in no small measure due to your efforts. And Chateau Hayuk, thanks again for the use of your music here in the Psychedelic Salon. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.